I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Ross Beattie. Ross, welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, you are a geologist um, and, and also a captain of industry. You've uh, been involved with several mining uh, companies. What is a, a geologist to you? How do you define it? What does a geologist do? Um, well, you know, a geology is a very big field, or you could say geoscience is a very big field. Uh, it encompasses, you know, everything that involves the Earth. It encompasses, you know, academia, talking about how the Earth was formed and, and things that are in it. Uh, uh, government people uh, are, are many are geologists who, who help administer things like slope stability and stuff like that. Uh, geologists look after... Uh, look after construction projects in terms of uh, foundation work. Geologists look into the solar system. They look into the deep earth, into the oceans. You know, it's, uh, it's a fantastic wide profession. Uh, there are many teachers who are geologists. There are lots of people in industry who are geologists looking for things like coal and gold and, and oil and diamonds and things like that. It's, uh, it's a very, uh, very diverse uh, field and it is a ton of fun. Wonderful. And uh, which aspect did you uh, follow? I fell into the business of exploration geology uh, because I loved being in the in the in the bush. I loved working in the field. And in the 1970s, when I uh, got my first degree from UBC, I there was a lot of opportunity to become a student geologist or or a field assistant with different mining companies who were looking for copper and gold and zinc and things like that in British Columbia. So uh, I. It started working in the bush in 1970. It's my first job with a large American mining company. I went up north, and uh, I really never looked back. I, I loved everything about it. Uh, I'd already taken my first year of geology at UBC, and I loved every single lecture. I can tell you, I just there was something that called me uh, to geology, and so um, it was really. I mean, I was getting paid to work in the bush, paid to camp, paid to fly around in helicopters paid to climb mountains, I would have done it for free. It was, it was just like, pinch me. Is this, is this really how, how a guy can make a living? Uh, this, is, this is actually fun. So that's, that was my start. And ever since then, I, I, uh, you know, I've been a very proud and, and happy geologist. But I found I was also a salesman, a good salesman. I, I was an entrepreneur, uh, you know, a kind of a self-starter. And so I, I started my first companies really after I, pretty much after I finished uh, being a student in the 1970s. I started a geological contract company named BD Geological in 1980, ran that until I, I, I merged that with my first public company uh, in 1985. <clears throat> and, uh, and really, I've been running public companies ever since 1985. I found I could sell stock. I could dream up projects that would part companies from their money. And, and, uh, and then I got very lucky. We actually found some mines. And so from there on, it was... Uh, one after another after another, and it's been, I think, 15 companies until today. And what does it mean to find a mine? Because you don't just, like, find the hole in the ground. First of all, you have to be lucky, but then it's also true you have to make your luck. And so uh, in my very first company, um, we would dream up a project of looking for gold, say, or, or copper in a certain... Actually, we looked for all kinds of stuff, almost always unsuccessfully. You know, we had big platinum exploration programs all across Canada, found nothing, we started. We looked for lithium in 1983, of all things. Uh, I, I did a project for tech, looking for lithium in Nevada, and uh, we found lots of lithium. But it was in it was in national monuments like Death Valley, so it wasn't commercially successful. But uh, we looked for all manner of things: zinc, lead, uranium. But finally, in Nevada, on a on a, on a remote area in the mountains uh, in Nevada, we found a gold mine called Rosebud, which was on a property we we staked, and then uh, eventually. That led to the, my first public company, Equinox Resources, being sold by, to a company that wanted to make a mine out of that first discovery we made. So in a certain sense, you know, we were lucky, but at the same time, you know, you have to make your luck. And we probably drilled 100 or 200 deposits across Canada and, and the United States before we found that big mine. Wonderful. That's a very realistic picture of uh, geology. Um, it sounds like a fair amount of disappointment sometimes. <laughs> 
You know, it, it, there is disappointment because again and again, you know, you, you drill into these perfect locations where it's got everything going for it, geochemically, geophysically, uh, geo, you know, mineralogically, every single reason to find a big deposit. And then you drill into the earth where you, of course, can't see and you find either nothing or you find you know, small amounts of the right mineral, but not enough to be commercially viable. So, you know, you're in the right place, but just don't have a commercial success. And, and that happens more times than, than uh, anyone would imagine. But that's part of the game. And at least you're out in nature camping and, like you said, flying around in helicopters. So that soothes the disappointment. <laughs> well, that depends. I mean, it depends. So in that sense, it depends if you're uh, kind of a contract or employee geologist. Uh, where you're working for a company or for someone else versus, say, me, where I was actually dreaming up these projects, walking around town looking for money from investors or from, you know, my, my very first company, I took money from my, my family and my mother. And you can imagine if your mother's a shareholder of your first company, you know, every time you, you see her, she's saying, how is our company doing these days? And, uh, and uh, you know, you don't want to have disappointment, right? You want to you try to have success or, you know, you're going to be another disappointment to your mother. So uh, that kind of puts a little edge on things and, and makes you want to succeed a little bit more when, when you have those, those kind of things happen. Now, you mentioned that you loved every class that you took in, in geology here at UBC. Uh, but why did you take those classes? What got you into geology in the first place? Well, I wanted to uh, find a job that would take me outdoors. I truly love being in nature. I love climbing mountains and kayaking and canoeing and skiing and all those outdoor things. It just so I wanted to do something that would uh, that would be a living off of working outside. And so it was either geology or it was forestry or you know fisheries or something like that. And and I just chose geology. I liked geography. I did very well in geography in high school. So I was you know in my first class at UBC, and the professor then was a a guy named Dr. Ted Danner, who was an eccentric but phenomenally good teacher. And, you know, he'd throw up slides of, you know, of, of tsunamis or volcanic eruptions or, or whatever, you know, involving the earth. And I just gravitated to it. It was, it was just like, this is made for me and, and I wouldn't do anything differently if I had to repeat my life over. It was a, a, a really a, a true love. I liked every lecture. I, I did well in it. And I really think it's sort of proof of the fact that if you really like something, you're going to do pretty well in it. Great. Now, you didn't just study geology, did you? Uh, you also went for a law degree, right? We, we, we don't have to talk about that too much here, but, but <laughs> it's, it's true. I, I, you know what happened, uh, Daniel? I, I was, um, so I, I did my first degree in, uh, in uh, geology at UBC. But it, I took third year out. I went to South America and climbed mountains with a couple of friends and then worked in, in South Africa for, for a summer. And then I came back, did my fourth year. Then I went to London, England to get a master's in, uh, in uh, exploration geology, mining geology at the Royal School of Mines. And then after that, I spent another year away uh, in, in Asia, again, climbing mountains and, and hitchhiking through Asia. So I got back to Vancouver. I've been away three years out of the previous four. I wasn't finished learning. I'm a real sort of information junkie and I and I, I love reading. I love learning. It's just was I wasn't finished studying. And I thought, well, what's the most I didn't want to do a PhD. I didn't want to do an MBA. I thought, what's the most opposite to geology, you know, to get a really rounded education? And I thought, well, it's law. It's a it's a human created thing compared to a nature created thing. So I, I suffered through three years of law school, finally got, you know, I articled, I, I actually got, you know, got a, uh, I got the uh, entrance to the bar, but I've never worked a day in my life as, in, as a lawyer. And quite honestly, I hated every minute of it. It was just, it just wasn't for me. I, I didn't like anything about law, but I, I stuck it through. And, you know, during the winter, I'd be a teaching assistant at UBC in, in, the, in, uh, in the mineralogy lab. Um, I worked part-time as a contract geologist in the winter as well, full-time in the summer. So, you know, I was still very active in the geological business. And then the day I left, the very day I was called to the bar, uh, was, it was July 10th, 1980. Literally the, the day after, I flew to the Yukon and started logging corn in a uranium project. And it was with my very first company, BD Geological, my first contract. And I haven't looked back since. So it's, uh, it was just kind of a weird little deviation from my life as a happy geologist. But... Um, you know, it, it was it was okay. It it, uh, it taught me a lot of things that I would never have otherwise learned about in terms of, you know, business, how it works, and how society is put together. And I'm sure it, it helped out in the in the long run, even if it wasn't pleasant getting it in the first place. 
Now, you mentioned that you've discovered a lot of mines, a lot of deposits. Uh, what's your proudest discovery? Well, well, there have been a lot. Uh, and I think I can say the very first one. I think really the, the project that made my first fortune and really made my career was the discovery of that mine in Nevada. Uh, and, and, you know, the story behind that is, is pretty, I, I loved it because this was in the mid-1980s. Uh, I was pretty good. I was a real specialist, a real expert. I really knew the geology. I knew the chemistry, the systems behind a certain kind of gold deposit called epithermal gold deposits. Um, these are hosted in young volcanic rocks. And I understood the science. I'd spent two years in New Zealand uh, in the same kind of epithermal system where you could see gold deposits forming in front of your eyes, literally in front of your eyes. Came back here, went down to Nevada. There's a lot of gold in Nevada, and, and there are certain places that have more potential than others. And we, we uh, it was with a group of guys. It wasn't just me. It was a whole team. And we, um, we used a very, a very clever Canadian exploration technique called walking. Um, there were mountains there that people didn't go to because American geologists tended to drive in their trucks, their pickup trucks, and they wouldn't get off the road very far. So we set up little fly camps where we'd go into an area, set up a, a, a tent and, and wander from the tent uh, camp all directions. And, and uh, one of our teams uh, found a, uh, some interesting looking rocks. We staked that ground. We then, uh, I did a joint venture on the property with a big American company. They drilled uh, looking for an open pit deposit. So they only drilled 500 feet deep holes and they didn't find anything. So they dropped the project, gave it back to me. Uh, my, that was my first company. Then we <laughs> kept it for a little while. Then we optioned it to another company, did a joint venture with another company, a, a great Canadian company called Lack Minerals. And lo and behold, they drilled 100 feet deeper than the previous company. And bingo, th this really high grade gold deposit was discovered which ultimately turned into a sort of a mid-sized deposit, high-grade gold, um, through, again, just tremendous luck. Um, it wasn't quite big enough for that company, so they sold it they, they, their half to me. I ended up with 100%, which is exactly what this, this other American company wanted, and they bought the whole thing for me for a crazy price uh, in 19, when was it, 1994. So I exited that company in 1994, uh, made a pile of dough. And then in the next day, um, well, a week later, we went to Disneyland with my family and, uh, you know, got into the other reality, came back and started Pan American Silver the next day from scratch. And that has become a, a big company. So, you know, that, that, that story really of discovery is, is a good one because it, 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 it shows people, you know, you can, you can go to places that have been pretty well hammered and you can still find things. If you have a little different technique, I mean, today walking is not so rare, but, um, you know, drilling a little bit deeper than someone else, having a little bit of a different viewpoint than someone else. Those all are all things that work in, in this day and age. That really reinforces something we've all learned with COVID is that the, the human and intimate uh, interaction with your environment um, is really important. So like you said, walking through the environment rather than driving through it uh, can unveil a lot more uh, information. Uh, what are you working on right now? Well, you know, uh, my career has been has been long and and enjoyable and uh, successful. Uh, I think I mentioned I've 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 founded fifteen different companies, and I mean there's still three or four. Let's see, I say there's four still around as public companies. I segued for a while for ten years into the renewable energy business um, and founded a company called Altera Power. Uh, the, the renewable energy business, selling, selling electricity is, is, is all about scale, is all about size. And um, so the bigger you are, the better. And, and I realized this after a while. So I actually combined that company with a large Montreal-based company called Interjects. And Interjects is, is running the business of all the assets that we had put together in that company. But um, I, I retired this year from my, my real flagship, Pan American Silver, um, after 27 years, and um, I'm still involved in a couple of juniors. One's called Lumina Gold, one's called Luminex that are working in exploration projects in, uh, in Ecuador. But my main thing on the business side I'm doing today is I'm chair and very active uh, participant in a large gold mining company that we started from, from scratch uh, just uh, three and a half years ago called Equinox Gold. My first company was Equinox Resources. My last, this would be my last company. It's Equinox Gold. And, you know, we've, we've, I don't want to be doing this for 27 years. 
so uh, we're going to go, we're trying to build a really big company really quickly. And, and uh, we're now, you know, a very significant player. We have about 7,000 employees and eight operating mines in, in four countries. So we're, or three countries, pardon me. So we're, we're a big active company and, uh, and uh, you know, that'll continue for a while, but eventually I'll phase out of that. And otherwise, pretty much I'm at the end of my career. I'm in the evening of my life. I just turned 70 and I'm, uh, it's about time I, I did other things, focus on my, my grandkids and I'm doing a ton of uh, environmental philanthropy right now. That involves both uh, commitment of money and commitment of time. So I'm on the boards of the Pacific Salmon Foundation, uh, the advisory board of the Nature Trust of BC, and the chair of the BC Parks Foundation. I'm on the board of Panthera, which is a large global wildcat conservation organization. And so I'm, you know, I'm keeping pretty busy, <laughs> as you can imagine, but I've always been busy. I've always had lots of irons and lots of fires. But this time it's less on the business side and more on the kind of personal and, and philanthropic side. Well, speaking of philanthropic, um... I mean, here at UBC, we've got a whole biodiversity museum named after you. What a surprise. <laughs> yes, I know. And you know what? Of all, the, of all the, I have to say this, of all the things that I've, I've you know, participated with as, as both donor and, and, and you know, participant, um, that is one of the most proud things I've ever, I've ever done. Things that I'm most proud of, I should say. It's just fabulous. Uh, that, that Biodiversity Research Center is, is awesome what they're doing. I'm so happy that UBC's done such a nice job of incorporating that into a multidisciplinary thing that really does try to profile the beauty of nature at the same time as researching the current issues that are threats to biodiversity. They've got it as a, as a magnet for inter international organizations. You know, the museum itself draws a lot of kids, a lot of school kids. They've got good programs. They've got lecture series. It's just wonderful. I'm so proud of it, and I'm so pleased that we, we, we got involved with that at the start. It's a stunning institution, absolutely. Um, you mentioned that you had a company that was involved with uh, uh, renewable energy production. What kinds of renewable energy production were they doing? Was it solar or wind or...? Well, how long have you got? Uh, I will try to abridge the comments. Uh, we started trying to build a world-class, you know, large... Um, geothermal power company using heat from the earth to make electricity and uh, you know base load power and clean and all that but the more i worked on that the more i realized it's a really really risky tough tough game that has high high risk which means a lot of failure and and not terribly good rewards either it's, it's sort of the exact opposite that you want for a public company it's high risk low return you want the opposite normally so i moved into the wind business the the hydro business and the solar business and we kind of exited the geothermal business more or less. Um, we had a big operation in Iceland, which we sold. We had a big operation in Nevada, which we sold. But we've built uh, large wind farms in Canada, Texas. Uh, we're involved in wind power in Chile. We have, we're probably the second or third largest hydro company now in Canada. We have about, I think about 20 or 25 different hydro operations, including quite a few around Vancouver and Whistler. Uh, that's all power uh, run by Interjex now. And uh, so it's it's a good-sized company. I think we produce nearly 4,000 megawatts, which is a, a decent amount of power. Now, one of my favorite parts of these interviews has been hearing about field stories. Um, I've never actually gone to, into the field myself, uh, but it seems to be this magical place where just crazy things happen. <laughs> uh, so in your long career, uh, do you have any field stories that you'd care to share? Oh, my God. I have uh, a lot of field stories, uh, some of which I'm happy to share, some of which I'd rather remain private uh, <laughs> because they demonstrate, you know, colossal stupidity and, and, and terribly bad, you know, errors of judgment and in, in where we went. I've, I've honestly, I've had more near death experiences than, than you know, a hundred other people or a thousand other people because I've done off these stupid things many, many times in my life. Um, but I, I really, I mean, honestly, I could, I could go on for hours. I have, I've had so many wonderful experiences in the bush. My first summer, uh, in 1970, I think I mentioned I worked for a large American company. And, and off I went in sort of early May. We went up to a place near Smithers. Uh, and our first week, because there was a lot of snow on the ground, we had to, we had to, we had to measure how, how deep the snow was. <laughs> so we had to wait until it melted before we could go into certain areas. But that was my first summer in the bush. Um, I left in, in early May and I came back to Vancouver in early September. I think I was in town two nights in that whole four month period. 
the rest of the time I lived in a small tent camp with between two and eight other guys. But it was a marvelous time, and uh, I just I just had the time of my life. It was fabulous, and and we even found some gold and some copper. So uh, it was it was also quite productive. I've had so many experiences in in working in remote places in the Yukon, in the Northwest Territories, across Canada. I've worked in Bolivia, in Peru, in Morocco. I spent three years working in Sierra Leone and Liberia. Uh, you know, on and off, not full time, but on and off running programs. I've, I've, you know, I've had cerebral malaria. I almost died from that. I, I got uh, toxoplasmosis. That's another nasty bug. Um, uh, you know, working at at eighteen thousand feet in the in the Bolivian Andes, down to you know below sea level in uh, in places like uh, uh, eastern or western China, down in the Gobi Desert. I mean, it's been a it's been a great life of adventure and uh, and uh, uh, not not all near death experiences, but a, a ton of fun as well. Um, although I will say, I've, I've spent a lot of time in tough parts of the world. I spent three years working in Haiti before uh, uh, Canada declared the War Measures Act effectively against Haiti because they they they'd had a military coup and Canada was supporting a democracy there. That was back in the uh, late eighties. I worked, spent three years in almost, no, actually uh, almost four years in Russia, in Eastern Russia, developing a big silver mine. Uh, finally, we got, we got uh, blown up by, uh, by a bunch of thugs from St. Petersburg who came and stole the project from us after we'd spent, I think, $37 million developing this big silver mine. And that was not a lot of fun. Uh, so this, it, it's not all been, an up, it's not all been, you know, easy. <laughs> There's been periods which have been really tough. Uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia, for example, when I worked there uh, from 1982 or 83, 83 to say 86, um, you know, Sierra Leone was more contract work, but Liberia, I really loved the gold potential. So uh, when I took my first public company, Public Equinox Resources in 85, that was the first place we went and worked. And I raised uh, the grand total of $120,000, I think, on on uh, on the the company's initial public offering, and then I went to London to raise a bunch of money because I'd seen this gold deposit in Liberia that was just fabulous. So I raised all this money in London, went down to to Liberia, bought a drill, hired a driller in Vancouver, shipped it to Liberia, and we ran this drilling program. Again, all manner of mayhem and chaos was happening there. There was a revolution just about to break out. We finally found a, a, a good gold deposit, but just as we found it, um, a kind of a, a, a big coup happened and there was a lot of bloodshed and we had to flee for our lives. So we left everything there. We left the drill. We left all our equipment. Uh, many, many stories on that on that subject, but uh, and, and I've never gone back. It's, you know, it, it spent the next 10 years was, was awful. But through all of that, you know, you kind of gain an appreciation of, of how to work in, in, in tricky places and and you can't be too choosy with with where you work either if you're trying to build a uh, an international mining company because mines are where they are you know where they're not where you might want them to be you might want them to be in you know in nice places easy to get to but but they're not like that so my career has taken me all over the world I love geography I love history I love travel um, and it's really I think made me a much broader person having the experiences that I've had in all of those international countries so believe me if you like travel, you know, being a geologist is not the worst thing you can be. The other cool thing is rocks don't talk back. They don't, they don't have revolutions. They, uh, they are, you know, they're, they're always there for you. <laughs> it's, it's relatively uh, pleasant working in anywhere in the world once you understand how the earth works, because the rules are the same all over the world. It's the political rules. It's the human condition that, that changes, and you've got to kind of get over that. And I've tried to, to, uh, to uh, resolve those kind of issues through being diversified, having a big diversified portfolio. So if something blows up in one place, you know, it's offset by happy things happening somewhere else. And that's kind of how it's worked for me. It sounds like you've really had a first, a first row seat to history. To some degree, yes, I have. I've worked in a lot of funny places and, and there's been some dumps and some, some great places too. You know, I, I look back and think, what was the best, funnest summer or, or, pro, or period or bush experience I ever had. And I, I really th- have to think it was 1974 when I worked in I, I, this sort of dream job. I, I worked in uh, Alaska. Uh, we were looking for copper, um, these big low-grade copper deposits called porphyry coppers. 
And the company, the company that I, I worked for at the time, uh, it was the, the Alaska Peninsula and the, the Aleutian Islands. So it's an island arc, and it's formed from recent volcanism that creates sometimes these big copper deposits. So we went up there, and it was completely, you know, we were the first people walking in some of these areas. We, we, we worked off a big boat. We had a 110-foot converted minesweeper that was stationed in Vancouver. It was a luxury yacht, but we, we sort of reconfigured it to be a, a working vessel for four geologists, four assistants. And then we had a chemist, and we had a helicopter on board, helicopter pilot, helicopter mechanic, and a crew of five. So we chugged up to Alaska. And I spent a whole summer flying from the boat onto land during the day. The land is beautiful, it's spectacular volcanic topography, you know, gleaming blue oceans, uh, glistening snow-covered peaks, no trees, no mosquitoes because it's so windy. The weather wasn't great. It was quite often stormy, but, you know, it was a, just a dream place for, a, for, a, uh, for field work. And um, almost no bush. There were, there were fish jumping everywhere, so we fished a ton. There were king crab every night, shrimp, you know, a wonderful sea life and, and uh, spectacular beauty. And I just thought to myself, how can I ever work in a more beautiful place and have more fun in a, in a, in a field season? So that was 1974, and I can say I probably haven't had more fun. I've probably had just as much fun in, in many places, but, you know, that was, uh, that was a marvelous, marvelous summer, and I... I uh, I look back on it with great fondness. I was just going to ask which was the best place, but you uh, preempted my question. Thanks. <laughs> now, uh, the most important question, you've mined for lithium, you've mined for copper, gold, lots of other metals. Uh, which is your favorite metal? Well, I, I, <laughs> I can see this now that I've retired from Pan American. I always used to say, well, of course, it's silver because, because the mission of Pan American was to become the world's largest silver mining company. And, and that we almost achieved. We became the second largest uh, um, about six years ago. Uh, so that was a kind of a cool achievement. The largest is a big, huge uh, Mexican uh, mining company that has this, this phenomenal silver deposit in, in Mexico. But, um, but maybe we'll get there someday. In any case, uh, I always have loved silver. It's, it's a great metal. It's widely used in everything humans, humans use and need. It's amazingly uh, uh, versatile metal. But... The actual answer to your question is I love gold the most. Gold has some kind of magic that I can't really describe. You have to just heft a, a, heft a gold ring or a gold nugget or a gold coin in your hand. Just feel that weight, the, the solidity, the mass, the warmth of gold. It's the most, gold and silver are very, you know, they're the most conductive metals of both heat and electricity. And so it just gets warm to your touch. There's just something magic about gold that I love. It's the color, and it's quite common in Earth. It's, 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 so when I started out to build a, a world-class gold mining company a few years ago, you know, it's quite achievable. It's, we're cheating a little bit because we're combining companies. We're taking over other companies that already have gold production. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's today's world rewards scale, so it's a reasonable business plan to do that. So we're producing 600,000 ounces a year now, which is a lot of gold. And uh, we're on target in about three years to produce 1.2 million ounces. And so it's, uh, it's been a, a lot of fun building that company in a metal that I really love, uh, that's useful for the world, that's beautiful. It's money, it's, uh, it's adornment, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a really cool metal. It's been, it's been valuable for 5,000 years, it's going to be valuable for the next 5,000 years. Notwithstanding all those who like crypto, it's still not going to offset the people who love gold as real money, real hard assets. Uh, you mentioned gold is useful. Uh, would you care to explain some of those uses? I have gold teeth. I mean, it's, it's fabulous for, for, you know, for fillings. It's way better than silver and amalgam and, and mercury. Um, it's very conductive, so it's used in a lot of electronics applications. It's used in, uh, obviously, as, as jewelry and as, as uh, you know, adornment, you know, things in, in, uh, that hold value for people. And for coins and as bars. Uh, for people who want to use it instead of a bunch of paper that will burn or rot, uh, that has a store of value for eons. And if you want to have something that's pretty much resistant to the pressures of inflation, you know, you should own a bit of gold because it, it gold, you know, an ounce of gold a thousand years ago could buy you just as much in, in real terms as it can today. A thousand dollars a thousand years ago, it would be worth about, you know, 0.0001 pennies today. Because paper is 
can be produced by any government and it can be it can be uh, just run off printing presses. And every time they print more money, it get, the actual stock of money in circulation becomes worth less and less and less. And governments do that all the time. But governments cannot create gold. So that's why it's very useful as a store of value for a lot of people. Not for everyone, but for a lot of people. That's a great argument for it. <laughs> now, I'm curious uh, about you personally. Uh, do you identify as belonging to any uh, underrepresented communities in the uh, geological community? Uh, and if so, do you feel like that's affected your, your studies or your career? You know, the whole uh, ESG, I'll say ESG, it's environmental, social, and governance. Uh, movement, it's really a movement, is something that, you know, I've kind of believed in all of my career. If you're going to do something, try to do it as, with as little impact on the environment as possible. If you're going to work in a place where there's social issues, try to do it in a, in a way that is in sync with the local people, not against them. Try to work together with people. Get your social license. And similarly, you know, governance means if you run a company, have, have equality and have diversity built into your mandate. Have lots of – mining tends to be a, a male-dominated game. And in fact, geology used to be like that too. But no more, thank goodness. There's a lot of fabulous, fabulous females coming, women and, and people of all, of all, quite frankly, genders and, and races who are studying geology now, who are great employees, great workers. And, you know, uh, uh, we don't even look at the, the gender or the, or the race when we go to hire people anymore because we know that it's it, a, a company with a certain diversity is actually a better company. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, but it's a better company. So they're smart. It's a smart direction to go in, whether or not, you know, you're pushed that way by a shareholder. It's just good business to do that. So we try to, to hire, you know, I think Pan American is the best example. We have, I think, 11,000 people in Pan American. I think something ridiculous, like, like 20 or maybe must be more than that, but it's not much more. 20 out of 11,000 have English as their first language. The rest are either Spanish, but only only sixty percent are Spanish because we're working a lot in Latin America. Oh, I beg your pardon. That that was a, that stats a few years old. I beg your pardon. We actually acquired a company that has a project in Canada now. So there's the guys in 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 uh, the people in um, in Timmins that are mine. They're are all they're all kind of Canadians. So uh, and 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 generally speaking, well, not all speak English. A lot of them speak speak uh, Quebecois, but. In, in Latin America, we've got a huge number, thousands and thousands of people who don't even speak Spanish as their first language. They speak Quechua and Aymara, which are the two uh, indigenous languages from the, the, the highlands of, of the Andes. So mm -hmm. they're local people. Uh, we have four or 5,000 employees in Peru alone. Every single one of them is local. Every single one. We don't have any gringos down there. So I'm, I'm very proud of all of that. That's just a, to me, it's a, it's a good business practice and it's a smart business practice and it actually makes us more money because gringos are expensive. They don't understand what's going on locally and they're not nearly as easy at, at managing problems as, as, as our locals. That sounds like a really uh, healthy and responsible business practice. Um... And it also sounds like you mentioned before, you like to travel and get exposed to other cultures. Uh, by working with these people, you actually uh, get a, a rich uh, and thorough exposure to their culture. For sure. If you want to get to know a country, work in it. You really understand issues that are, that are involving the country and the people of the country when you work there. You get to know the government. You get to know, you know the local uh, business uh, you know, all the different companies that are involved there. And, and it's, it's, you know, the pluses and the minuses and there's, there's both. I'm salivating thinking about how you probably got to know their um, local cuisine as well. I'm sure it was wonderful. <laughs> well, you know, don't, don't salivate too much. There's uh it's not all good. I mean, when you're up in the Peruvian highlands and you get served their local delicacy of, of fried guinea pig, you know, it's not, it's not always, uh, or, or if you're in Bolivia and you got, you got a, a plate of llama meat, uh, which isn't always very tender. It's it's not uh, it's not always perfect. But uh, you know, you just roll with the punches. I have a, an ironclad stomach, so I'm I'm lucky that way. I can eat anything. Wonderful. Uh, you mentioned you've uh, faced illnesses in in the field, but um, this whole year has been a, a year of illness for the world. Um, I'm curious, how has your your work been impacted by the pandemic? Uh, it's been impacted, I would say, 
moderately. I mean, a lot of the mining operations had to either shut down or reduce operations during COVID, so it was expensive. Luckily, the companies are strong and they can withstand that. Uh, making people work from home has been difficult, but it's 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 not been fatal to the business operations. And we're kind of getting back to normal now. We're still some countries like Argentina and Bolivia are still suffering. Brazil, we're very active in Brazil. We have four operating mines there, but they're they're kind of they've kind of never stopped. We you know the same with Mexico. There's COVID has you know swept through both countries, and it still is. But they haven't taken the same kind of draconian actions as other countries. So. The businesses have been okay there, uh, and you know we test a lot. We have very strict protocols and try to do our best. So it's affected it, but it hasn't by any means been as fatal to our industry as it has, for example, to the hotel industry or the the travel you know travel industry generally. We've managed to manage through it. Great. It's yeah, it's great to hear that you're doing testing at all your facilities as well. Uh, that's really important. Now you've painted a picture of a really. Um, glamorous lifestyle. Again, you're traveling around the world. Uh, so if anyone's listening and is inspired to follow in your footsteps, uh, what background courses or experience would you recommend uh, that they take or, or, or practice to follow follow you? Well, I think, you know, uh, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but uh, just good basic um, basics fields, you know, basic subject, I should say. I mean, to, to be a good geoscientist, you need to have a good underpinning in the basics of, you know, geochemistry, geophysics, uh, uh, mineralogy. Um, it, it sort of depends on the direction you're going to go, obviously. If you want to go into academia, it's one thing. If you want to go into government, it's one thing. If you want to go into geomechanics or or, or engineering, geology, or any of those fields, it's, it's different stuff. But, uh, a good, you know, undergraduate years should be should be basics, should be getting a good grounding in basics. And so you understand systems, you understand the chemistry behind how the earth works and the physics behind how it works. Um, beyond that, you know, a lot of my uh, life has been about just sort of life experience, you know, traveling and understanding how, how to do business, uh, um, you know, working in places, once you've had that basic education, it's it's what you learn working and, and different companies and different ways of managing things. That's that's what succeeded for me. So university should be a place of, of fundamental learning rather than necessarily too much application. You can apply all that stuff later. Get your basics. If you don't have your basics, you don't have anything. And that's why I've often counseled people who want to go into, quote, environmental studies to forget about environmental studies and study something basic like biology or, or, you know, chemistry or geology or some sort of basic science or, or even, uh, you know, even political science or history or geography, any of those things. And in postgraduate years, if they want to specialize to go down some rabbit hole that they're really interested in, that's the time to specialize. Do, you know, get a broad, general, basic, under, you know, education in your undergrad and then specialize later or even specialize once you're through university and out into the work world. That's where... I think anybody with any uh, particular direction is going to find the most uh, the most value in 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 getting there. That's great advice. The the broad and shallow approach, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And also have fun. I mean, for God's sakes, university is a you know. I think every everybody who's graduated from university would say after you know thirty years looking back, they'd say, "Boy, do I ever." Did I ever enjoy that period? Was that ever a wonderful time in my life? Um, and you can only say that if you if you get involved. I was very active in the outdoor club at UBC, this you know skiing and climbing mountains and and uh, and having all kinds of fun in different different groups. Um, I just recommend that to everybody. Live a big life. You'll you'll get a lot more out of it. That's something else I've noticed with geologists. They love to have fun. <laughs> and they're a fun bunch. <laughs> they do. <laughs> yes, and I won't go into those stories. Uh, so I'm curious, as you were uh, emerging as a geologist, did you have any role models or anyone who inspired you while you were uh, either studying or in your early career? You know, uh, unfortunately, when I was in um, when I was in my third year at, at UBC, my my father died in a in a in a car accident in South America, just a fluky thing, when he was 55, and. Uh, he gave me his entrepreneur gene because he was an entrepreneur himself in the lumber business. Uh, I think I got my my gift of the gab from my mother. So they they gave me those genetic benefits. Um, 
but because I lost my dad, who might otherwise have been my my you know my my mentor or my 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 you know somebody who maybe helped me go my way, I really can say I don't think I really had that person in my life. I really found my own way, and I made my own mistakes, which were many. And uh, even in the business world, I I just kind of bumbled along and uh, got I would say got so lucky so many times in in so many ways. Lucky with you know, lucky with meeting my wife, who became my only wife 41 years ago. We got married. We have five kids. They're all healthy. That doesn't always happen, you know. Um, and not having any real terrible accidents in all the crazy places I went and, and, and crazy things I did, uh, that was all lucky. But, um, you know, as I said before, life's a one-way street. You never really know what would have been different had I had this happen to me. Uh, so... Generally speaking, if you have just give yourself lots of opportunity to be lucky, lots of you work hard, you get get up in the morning early, you go to bed late at night, you're going to be successful no matter what area you work in, I think. And and that's that's general advice I would give to almost anybody. Wonderful. And I'm glad you highlighted uh, those soft skills that you got from your parents, uh, the entrepreneurialism and the ability to tell a good story. Um, clearly, you are a wonderful uh, storyteller and communica uh, communicator. Um and those soft skills are things that we often forget are really, really important, almost as important as or uh, equally important as the hard skills. Now, when you bring new people on into your team, uh, what do you look for? I look for people who I can delegate important things to and then they can just go off and do their business. So people, who, first of all, people who are smart, people who are smart. And secondly, people who are fun to be with. I always say one of my rules of hiring people is if I can take them home, I mean, my mother's dead long, long, long ago, but I, I would maybe replace my mother with my wife. My wife's a very good judge of character, very, very quick judge of character. And um, I, I would always say if, if, if that person can come home and have, have dinner with my wife and she likes them, I mean, that's a real test. Uh, they rarely do. <laughs> we actually don't, don't do that ever, but, but it's a test for me. And so the person has to be smart. They have to be nice. And if they've got those two ingredients, you know what? You can give them almost anything to do and they're going to do well. These are people who are self-starters who don't have to be told what to do all the time. Really, you can't run a company with, you know, say 11,000 people in case of Pan American. We've got six now, 6,000 in Equinox and Altera or the clean energy company had hundreds and hundreds. You can't do that being a, a making all decisions yourself. You just can't do it. You've got to delegate and you've got to trust people you delegate things to. And then you've got to get out of their way. And if they're smart people, they're going to excel. They're going to build a great company along with you. And if they're not that way, if you make a mistake, you just say, sorry, this isn't working out. You're going to be happier doing something else or someone else. Exit and find someone to replace them. You've just got to do that early on if, if somebody isn't working out. Because otherwise, it's hell. It's miserable for everybody. Um, and so, you know, I've hired people, I've hired people with, without even having jobs for them. I mean, I've had people walk into my into my office over time who I like. I just sort of get their resumes float across my desk and they look like, you know, smart, pleasant people. And I've hired them <laughs> and I've found jobs for them. And they've ultimately become very, very successful people in our organizations. So um, that's kind of my my uh, my simple uh, message. And, and as I say, it doesn't always work. You know, I make mistakes all the time with, with judging people. But usually you get a pretty good feeling within a fir the first few minutes of an interview and uh, and you kind of know whether somebody's right or wrong. That's great. That's a really simple way of explaining, um, yeah, how to choose people. Um, and I love that management style of just getting out of people's way so that they can do what they do best. Uh, that's really under-celebrated, I think. Well, and the other thing in our business, don't forget, it's a business where because it's an exploration-driven game, um, which given that it's exploration is a very high-risk business, you have to understand most of the time you fail. And so you cannot, you cannot judge a person by how well they have succeeded in, say, discovering a gold mine or a uranium mine or whatever. Uh, you've got to judge them based on whether they do what they say they're going to do, whether they spend money as they, as they plan to, whether they execute jobs well. The discovery thing is up to luck. And, and you, of course, you, you know, the harder you work, the more you, the luckier you get. And, uh, and generally speaking, lucky people are lucky in a serial fashion so there might be something else there but you have to remember that you, you know you can't put a, a bonus plan together um, 
for someone who works really, really hard but doesn't find anything with another guy or another woman or another person who who maybe doesn't work as much but gets lucky. And, and so you've got to have something that, that binds them together. Now, you mentioned you're getting close to the end of your career. Uh, what do you consider to be your legacy or what would you like to be your legacy uh, with the years that you have left? I have a lot of legacies, I think, that uh, make, give me great joy. One is uh, my family, of course, my kids, my grandkids. I have five grandchildren right now with a, a couple more in the oven. Uh, I have... Um, I have all these companies I've, I've started from nothing and have become big, big companies that create wealth for mil- not millions, create wealth for certainly thousands and tens of thousands of, of workers, hundreds of thousands of people in communities that they live uh, around. You know, if you think of a, of a good mind that might generate five or six hundred million dollars of, of, uh, of revenue a year, a year, and that goes mostly to local communities, local employees, the government for taxes and and all the services that you need to run that mine, that's a very large engine of wealth creation that if it's spent well, it drives communities to become wealthier and it drives people to have better lives. That's really a great legacy, I think, of some of the of, of some of the mines that we've built and 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 the companies we've we've worked on. So that's a big legacy for me is having done that. It's a very rewarding thing. Uh but the most important I think right now is the legacy that I leave on the environmental side. The uh, most of my all my philanthropy right now is environmental and biodiversity uh, philanthropy through my foundation, the Sitka Foundation, and different uh, NGOs that I sit on the board of, like the Pacific Salmon Foundation, the Nature Trust, Nat- uh, Parks Foundation, Panthera, uh, and it's it's the projects that we support and where they go. Uh, biodiversity Museum is just one. It's, I think we're funding seventy five different groups across Canada right now all who are trying to uh, protect the environment and protect the loss of biodiversity or improve biodiversity in Canada, promote biodiversity. And it ranges from people protecting single species like frogs and, and, and birds and fish and things to much broader things like, like what Suzuki Foundation's doing and, and, and so many groups like that who are, who are trying to change Canadian public policy, I do a lot of work on land conservation, trying to create parks and protected areas, nature reserves, that kind of thing from the rapacious nature of humans. And uh, think about all the millions of species that humans rely on to give us good lives that we need and we're trashing right now. So that that's a legacy. It's much more difficult to make into a concrete thing like a building or like a company, but it really is, uh, it's the most important thing I think that I'm doing for the future. Wonderful. And that's a rich and, and worthy legacy. Now, my last quick question is, um, I'm just curious, where do you see mining going in the future? And uh, what advice do you have for young people who uh, maybe want to anticipate some of those changes as they're getting into the field? Oh, mining is, is well, first of all, mining is going to be with us forever because humans uh, in an industrial society need metals. It's just that simple. We need metals and we need energy, and you can only get that from, from, uh, from the ground. Uh, if it can't be farmed, it has to be mined. And we need all these things for our, our industrial society. If, if we don't want mines, then we shouldn't be using metals at all. Uh, but if you assume you want metals in your life, you cannot be against mining. And you actually then have to choose, do we have good mining or do we have bad mining? And I think really the, the, the effort of all geologists, all business people, everybody in this industry are to do as much as you can to do sort of the good mining, the mining that is in sync as much as possible with the environment, with social uh, conditions, with with everything else that's important that we talked about. Uh, and and there's many ways to do that. And there's many fields in mining that, that people can get involved with that are part of that. It's not just sort of environmental geologists or environmental engineering. It's 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 better technology that reduces the use of water, reduces the use of reagents like cyanide, reduces the footprint of mines, makes them much smaller, tighter places, improves recoveries. Uh, we're, we're mining a mine right now in, in California, which is kind of like I call it the garbage mine, because we're reusing wastes from previous mining for the last 30 years. We're, we're reprocessing waste because we have a more efficient technology and we're producing gold from what was their garbage. And it's it's fantastic. So 
you know, uh, circular economy stuff, moving people into getting metals by recycling. That's a great business. That's a, a good industry, kind of mines from, you know, garbage dumps. Um, lots and lots of opportunity there. Lots of technology. I mean, it's a field that's always going to be with us. It's not necessarily dirty. I mean, don't forget after every mine's finished, these are reclaimed areas to the point that you can sometimes not even know there's a mine there. Um, as opposed to, say, a subdivision or a, or a parking lot or a mall, which never get reclaimed, and they're always ugly, and they're always permanent destructions of a chunk of land. So people never remember that. But, um, you know, mining, mining has a bad name for some people and for some reasons, and some places that still exists. It's, generally speaking, yesterday's story, and it's, it's like that because modern people in the industry are really working hard to make it as low an impact in industry as possible and something that is purely for the benefit of society as opposed to the harm of society. And that's, I think, what uh, modern mining is going to be more and more uh, uh, famous for. I love the elegance of that. Uh, you either have to grow it or you have to mine it and we can have good mining or bad mining. So let's focus on good mining. You bet. And by the way, right behind you, I see uh, I see the Pacific Museum of the Earth, uh, which is something I was very active in, in setting up, as you well know. And it's, uh, it's that, those kind of things that I'm also proud of. Don't forget to look at those minerals that are there. And remember, that is nature's art. That is right, natural, spectacular beauty. Um, it's, it's, that's another legacy I'm very proud of. And we're proud to, to have, yeah, have had you help us. <laughs> well, Ross, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything I missed or is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Uh, I think we've said more than enough. Thank you very much. It's been fun walking through some of my, uh, my life here, and, uh, and I really appreciate the uh, invitation to, to be with you today. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.